Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hola, hola, hola. Aquí comenzamos Don't Interrupt Me, por favor, el podcast bilingüe para disfrutar de inglés aprendiendo el español o viceversa. Somos tres como los Reyes Magos. Hola, Lisa Button. Hola, ¿qué tal? Feliz 2020, Nick Leiber, ¿cómo estamos? Hola, Guillermo Fesser. Doing well, thank you. Happy 2020-2020. Happy 2020, que en total hacen 40, como prácticamente los programas que llevamos en este podcast. Hoy vamos a hablar de África. Hace ya muchos años, eh, con mis tres hijos y mi mujer, marchamos a Senegal, hicimos un recorrido por pequeños poblados y aquel país nos cambió a cada uno, por razones eh, diferentes pero poderosas, la manera de ver este mundo. Eh, Nico entonces tenía muy poquitos años y para Nico África fue algo muy especial, supongo, ¿no? Pues sí, la verdad es que sí. Um, hello everybody, uh, thanks for having me again on the show. Um, pues sí, me cambió mucho la vida. No, no te puedo decir exactamente cómo, because that's kind of one of those things that just happens and life takes you down weird paths. But long story short, I, uh, I ended up always wanting to go back and I always eventually did go back uh, time and time again. So por, por esa, esas dos semanitas en Senegal, pues sí, ha cambiado mucho mi vida y yo creo que la vida de otros muchos también. How old were you when you went, Nico? Um, You know, I'm not exactly sure, but I think I was, I was certainly in middle school, so I must have been maybe, you know, 10, 11, 12, something in that range. Desde entonces han, se han sucedido varias visitas al continente africano, la última este verano eh, a la República Democrática del Congo, con una epidemia gravísima de ébola, y has traído de allí eh, recuerdos, memorias y sobre todo el entendimiento de lo que está ocurriendo, ¿no? eh, Pues sí, efectivamente. Bueno, la verdad es que lo que está pasando en el Congo es horrible. Eh, hay una guerra ahí. Most people don't talk about it. Um, most people don't really know about it. But there's been conflict in the zone for the last 20 plus years following the Rwandan genocide. And... Um, Yeah, I'm not sure exactly what the figure is, but since World War II, it's been the deadliest conflict on Earth. Um, but then again, la gente no lo conoce, entonces no se habla de ello, y entonces no cambia mucho la historia. Pero sí es muy triste lo que está pasando ahí, y la verdad es que estar en, en un país como el Congo, una vez que ya tenía la experiencia de visitar África unas cuantas veces, you kind of can see how, how the world and it's all the the global globalization um, kind of affects the whole system because at the end of the day, what's fueling the conflict and the war is the international trade um, due to all the precious minerals that are in the Congo. It's interesting that you've been going to Africa. It's not exactly the study abroad destination of most kids, you know, and now you're, now you're a young man and you're, tell us a little bit more about what you're doing now. 
Sure. So it's funny you say that because I, I actually decided to study abroad um, in, in Africa. I went to Ghana um, in West Africa and I had an internship there when I was there at the West Africa AIDS Foundation. So I kind of got exposed to international healthcare doing that th through that organization. Um, and so I, I quickly realized that what I wanted to spend my time in was doing international aid. I didn't know if it was going to be in Africa or it was going to be elsewhere, but something about the continent just kept on bringing me back and bringing me back. And so eventually, uh, long story short, I ended up working um, for different uh, causes here stateside. And every chance I get, I just find myself going back. So um, that's kind of where I'm at now. But yeah, like like my father was alluding to, I, I went to the, the DRC this last summer and um, that definitely was a, a brand new perspective. It's it's not an intro to Africa, I would say. <laughs> Eres un estudiante de medicina, pero en el Congo, eh, con tanta necesidad de médicos, de repente te encontraste como si fueras el cirujano de, de un, una película de, de la televisión. Eh, pues sí, parecido. Bueno, la verdad es que hay muchos médicos en el Congo. Lo que pasa es que no hay demasiado trabajo para los médicos. Entonces hay muchos médicos en el Congo que son buenísimos todos, que no tienen trabajo. Entonces yo iba por la calle y médicos a mí me preguntaban si yo les podía conseguir trabajo en los Estados Unidos. And it's very interesting to think about because you'd think in a country such as the DRC there'd be a shortage and they need all these international workers to come in and to an extent they do for certain specialty operations, surgeries that you can only really learn in the States or in Western Europe. Um, but one of the reasons why there's also a lot of conflict in the, in the region between outsiders and locals is because there are a lot of physicians there that are very qualified. And when big organizations such as the UN or Doctors Without Borders set up shop, they really only bring in international workers. And so all the local physicians feel like they're either not respected or just aren't given the, the time of day. So to a large extent, me going there was was beneficial because I got to work with the physicians and I learned from them. They're absolutely incredible what they do, very skilled. Um, but on the flip side, I by no means needed to be there um, to to give my ex medical experience as a medical student. They, uh, they were far and beyond um, better than what I ever could have imagined as physicians. What were you doing there? I spent I spent two different uh, I went to two different cities. La prime, los primeros cuatro o cinco semanas estaba en la ciudad de Goma, que está al este de, del país, y ahí estaba en una, un hospital, una clínica bastante grande, lo que ahí llaman hospital, lo que aquí se llamaría clínica, eh, pero estaba trabajando más que nada with women in the OBGYN department. So I was delivering babies, doing C-sections, um, random little surgeries, suturing up stuff. And then just doing regular primary care, uh, dealing with malaria, typhoid, um, different kinds of bugs, parasites, worms, all that kind of stuff. What a training! That's incredible. But that's not a, that's not a, that's not Ebola. That's 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 not, that's not Ebola. So that that's where I was for about four weeks, and then a, a Ebola was was in the whole region, and everybody was talking about it because I was in the major city, and it was everywhere outside of the city, but not in the city. And so, um, you know, people were quite terrified of what was going on, uh, rightfully so. And so I ended up kind of starting a, a little research project just to kind of understand 
what people think, why they think that certain way about Ebola, um, because there's a lot of conspiracies in in the region uh, surrounding the disease. And so what I ended up uh, deciding to do is I took a a flight up to Beni, which is a a, a city north of Goma, and that's where that was the hot zone of Ebola. And that's where I spent the rest of my time. Um, And that's where I I, I did most of my Ebola work. ¿Y qué dice el estudio ese que que hiciste para ver en qué consistía la percepción de Ebola en la República Democrática del Congo? Bueno, hay muchas cosas y la verdad es que son muy, muy interesantes. Eh, Primero, mucha gente se cree que el Ebola eh, viene de los Estados Unidos, viene de Europa, de un laboratorio que lo han creado para causar más distrust en la comunidad, ¿cómo se diga? Y, y con eso las organizaciones, una vez que hay la guerra, because of the war, they want to continue the war. Um, these NGOs, these uh, mining companies and stuff, they want to maintain the war so that prices are low and um, you know the global market maintains itself. So a lot of people think that they brought Ebola into the region to further destabilize it, to increase the amount of conflict in the area, to keep the prices let down. That's what a lot of people think. Um, it's certainly after spending six weeks there, it does. It's not illogical, um, which when I first went, it seemed seemed pretty illogical. You hear some other things, like por ejemplo, mucha gente se cree que lo ha traído el diablo. Eh, mucha gente se cree que en la clínica de bola, si te mueres, te quitan el corazón, te quitan los órganos y lo lo venden a países ricos como los Estados Unidos para que gente que necesita un corazón o un órgano o lo que sea un páncreas pueda comprarlo y bien del Congo barato, ta, ta, ta. vamos, que se creen que la vida del, de una persona del Congo no vale nada, que no es verdad, pero en su en su mundo es lo único que conocen, and you can kind of understand it once you spend time with them because truthfully they, they've never really uh, gotten any any sort of support from what we would consider uh, Western nations. And now they're facing measles. Isn't the measles epidemic there even worse than Ebola? Yeah, yeah, measles. There's been a big measles outbreak. Um, there's uh, there's a big cholera outbreak not long ago. Typhoid is endemic. Malaria is endemic. Um, truly, speaking from a medical standpoint, it's it's riddled with with disease and, and, and problems. Um, what I think, though, is the, the 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 saddest part of it all is is the ongoing conflict, the war. Um, it's for lack of a better word, it's a massacre. Um, you have all these rebel groups fighting for different mining territories um, that just go in and just butcher uh, the community, um, kill tens, dozens of people in random towns just to instill fear. Um, and and this is ongoing to this day. And, and that's kind of one of the reasons why you can't work on the healthcare infrastructure of the country. The reason why a lot of these doctors can't open up their own hospitals is because you have all these rebel forces that just come in and kill indiscriminately. ¿Nos puedes contar algo de cómo fue un, un día típico para ti? Como doctor ahí, sí, ¿dónde, sí. ¿dónde vivías? ¿A qué hora ibas a la clínica cuando llegaste? ¿Qué tenías que hacer para prepararte? Hombre, claro. Bueno, es que estuve en dos zonas distintas, entonces me cambió un poco el mundo. En la primera ciudad, en Goma, donde estaba, vivía con una familia que tenía un hijo pequeño de un año. Entonces yo me despertaba a las 6, 7 de la mañana, eh, desayunaba con ellos y me iba con la mujer, con la madre, a la clínica porque ella también trabajaba ahí. Y desde las 7, 8 de la mañana hasta las 4 estaba en la clínica haciendo 
eh, rounds, eh, viendo todos los pacientes, haciendo cirugía, todo, todo, todo. Eh, y después me, me volví a casa, a veces en moto, a veces en coche, a veces con la señora otra vez, y de ahí eh, jugaba con el niño, eh, me iba de compras en goma, eh, el mundo un poco más normal. Cuando me fui a, a Beni, que es donde está ahí el ébola, eh, y donde hay mucha, mucha inseguridad, ahí ya daba un poco más de miedo, porque ibas por la calle en coche y de repente te pasa un tanque las Naciones Unidas. Y no solo un tanque, van, van tres seguidos y ves que tienen they have bullet holes, they have big soldiers like carrying, you know, massive guns. Um, and so that was a little bit scarier. And also, you know there's Ebola in the region and your transport is, is public transport in the sense of you get on the back of a motorcycle and grip onto whoever you're holding onto and they take you wherever you're going. And so you don't know if they have Ebola. They don't know if the patient that was just before you who was sweating in a car seat had Ebola. There's all these things that, that make that world a lot scarier. So when I was in Benny, the number one rule is you wash your hands with chlorinated water every 15 minutes, no matter what. So entras, entras a una tienda, te los lavas. Sales de la tienda, te los, te los lavas. Vas a tu casa, te las lavas antes de entrar. Vas a salir de tu casa, te las lavas. En la clínica, cada cinco minutos te las lavas. Y también, cuando, cuando estaba en Beni, hice algunas cirugías también. Y ahí es donde sí que daba mucho miedo, porque te tenías que poner todo el, el gown, el protective equipment, y eh, hace muchísimo calor, pero tienes que hacer una cirugía cuando, donde hay muchísima sangre, como un C-section, por ejemplo, where there's just a lot of liquids, a lot of fluids, and that's the main way Ebola is spread. And so you're there doing a surgery with all these fluids falling on you. You don't know what the status of the patient is. Um, so that, that world was what I would consider the more, the more hectic, chaotic one. ¿Cuál es el protocolo para, para Ebola? Exactamente, eh, cómo se, qué, ¿qué tipo de enfermedad es eh, y cómo se propaga esta enfermedad? Eh, o sea, el Ebola es un virus y nada, se propone por to, todos los líquidos del cuerpo. O sea, la saliva, eh, el vómito, diarrhea, direct blood contact, uh, snot, Uh, teardrops, uh, you name it. So, so it's mainly spread through through bodily fluids, um, and it has an incubation period of anywhere from uh, a few days to about three weeks. So, so you never really know if you're getting infected or not until you show symptoms, and you know, don't know if you're clear or not until three weeks after getting infected. Um, so that that's a big problem in the community because certain people. Um, might touch someone who has Ebola, but then they feel fine for two weeks. So they're like, oh, I don't have Ebola. And then they get sick um, and um, they, they think, oh, maybe it's just something else. Maybe I just have a flu or whatnot. So that, that's one of the issues. Um, the, the bigger issue, what I think, is that kind of what you were alluding to before is there's a lot of disease in the Congo. And a lot of these diseases present very similarly in the first few days. Um, kind of like what you would describe as the flu. Malaria kind of feels like the flu. Um, dengue fever feels like the flu. Ebola feels like the flu. And these are all diseases that they've had uh, all dealt with for you know, their entire lives. So they, 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 they get infected with the disease. They feel like it's something that they're familiar with. Um, and they know that if they go to the, to the clinic with these symptoms, that they'll get flagged and sent to an Ebola center. And there's a lot of fear, porque ellos saben, si te vas a la clínica de Ebola, significa que o te, va, o, o te van a contagiar en la clínica, 
porque quieren tus órganos y tal, 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 tal o eh, que te vas a morir en la clínica, porque más del 80% de la gente que se infecta se muere. Entonces, si tú tienes una fiebre, mucha gente lo que hace para ir a ver a un médico, se toman un ibuprofeno o lo que sea, hasta que se quite la fiebre, después se van a la clínica a hablar con los médicos y como ya no tienen fiebre, eh, no les mandan a la clínica de bola. Porque para mandar de la clínica de bola tienes que tener una fiebre. Entonces se quitan la fiebre, van a la clínica, ven a los médicos, infectan a más, más pacientes, más personas, and then after that, that's kind of how the cycle continues. I know there's a thing with medical students where they sometimes feel like they're getting the condition of what they're, you know, studying. Like I, I had a doctor who said when he was in medical school, he convinced another doctor to actually operate on his neck because he was so sure that he had this one pro <laughs> disease or problem. So here you are going to a place with Ebola I mean, were you afraid? Did you ever start feeling sick while you were there and wonder if you were getting it? Um, no, the, um, so after I left Benny, um, again, on, on a flight, I, I got back to Goma and spent a few more days there before I finally left the Congo. And about four days after leaving Benny and being in Goma, the one of the the housemaids in in um a, a young probably like 18 year old boy who helped cleaning up and stuff he uh, i walked into the living room and he was kind of slumped over a couch throwing up barely moving and um you know that it's it's pretty it, it looked to me in that moment i freaked out because i was like a, did I give this guy Ebola? Because I, I could have had it, but not had symptoms yet and still passed it on to him. Um, and B, did I was I the one to bring Ebola into this major metropolitan city um, in the Eastern Congo, which would have been and could still be disastrous. Um, and so that happened and I had a big freak out. I called the, the, the people who I lived with and kind of explained the situation. Meanwhile, my heart was pounding. I was like, oh my God, I can't believe I did this. Long story short, he had gone out and got drinks with a friend and got too drunk and, uh, <laughs> and ended up throwing up. And yeah, so and he wouldn't tell me or the other or the, the woman we lived with because obviously he didn't want to lose his job. Um, bueno, cast yeah. yo creo que esto es castigo, castigo de Dios por decirles a tus padres que estabas en Goma y de repente aparecer en Benny donde estaba la, el centro epidémico de, de bola. No, no, que si estoy a varios kilómetros, por cierto, recuerdo que. Hablando con Nico cuando quería ir al Congo, digo, pero está muy bien ser un héroe, pero no podría ser un héroe el hijo del vecino y, y tú podrías trabajar quizás en una panadería en verano. Eh, y me dijo, papá, si en Chicago todos los días muere más gente que, que en el Congo eh, con los problemas que hay ahora mismo. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So, Nico, this, this may be the time to ask you, you know, thinking about this experience, like, and your heart pounding, like, Why did you want to go in the first place? 
Yeah, so that, that's- and it's actually a two. It's a two part question, and then and then you're back and you're back in school in Buffalo, and like, what do you do with all all the stuff that you've learned? Like, what are you doing now? So it's a two part question. So okay. let's start with the why, yeah, and then so get to the what's no, happening. The why, the why is a is a big big part of the the reason. So, um, kind of to to backtrack, like I said, so I you know as a little kid, I went to Senegal, um, fell in love with it, decided to study abroad in Ghana. Um, was there for five months, worked in healthcare there, loved it, um, was fortunate enough while I was in Ghana, I got accepted to this program in Tanzania doing, um, uh, through, through my university, I got accepted to the, to this, uh, program to kind of do sex ed and HIV prevention education. Um, and so I, I quickly knew that that's, this was a realm that I wanted to work in. Um, and so when I got back to the States, I ended up working in, in a lab that was kind of, it, it was an HIV, uh, vaccination development lab. Um, I did not find the vaccine and no one has yet, but anyway, long story short. So I, so I kind of got into this world of, of international healthcare and kind of on, on, on a more, uh, um, larger scale, you could say. Y después de eso, después de graduarme de, de la universidad, donde fui la universidad de Wisconsin, eh, me, me aceptaron para hacer unas prácticas, lo que aquí se llama un internship, en las Naciones Unidas en Nueva York. Y en the United Nations, I, I worked for the Medical Services Division um, uh, under the, the Medical Director of the United Nations, which was an absolutely incredible experience. I, I got to see a lot of movie-like scenes um, uh, and got to, got, to, got to work with some brilliant people. But one of the projects I worked on there was actually working on delivering uh, protective equipment for an Ebola epidemic that was happening also in the Congo at the time. It was a much smaller one, much smaller than this current one, um, but it was just something I was working on. And so that was my first exposure, A, to Ebola, but B, to the Congo. So I always thought to myself, well, you know, I, I kind of have some experience with Ebola. I've traveled throughout um, Africa and, and by myself. So I felt pretty comfortable, you know, kind of taking that risk on. But then I also knew that I had the the scientific background to actually, you know, not not be a risk to others or to myself. Um, so when this last summer came up, I knew there was an Ebola epidemic. Um, and, I, you know, I was somewhat familiar with the Congo through my internship at the UN. Um, and so it kind of was a perfect storm. I had two months to to pretty much do whatever I wanted to. And uh, I know I, I knew I didn't want to work in a in a biochemistry lab uh, pipetting, you know, 12 hours a day. So I decided to just, you know, take the risk and go. And I found found some contacts that would allow me to, to go through there. Um, as you can imagine, the university was um, not too fond of my plans, but I, I, I went on anyway. And, you know, now I would think they would be fond. That's weird. Uh, so. Yeah, so you'd think so, but um, with knowing the United States and its uh, passion for liability control, um, that was something that that was off the table very, very quickly. Que no se lo dije a papá, lo siento mucho, pero sí, el colegio me... La universidad me dijo que no, básicamente. Entonces me fui. Menos mal que vives lejos porque si no te acuesta más caliente. Me parece a mí que, hablando de todas las enfermedades que has mencionado en el Congo, más que de un problema médico, estamos delante de un problema de salud pública. Y más que de una enfermedad, estamos hablando de pobreza, ¿no? ¿Qué intención hay de curar el ébola y de curar las enfermedades del Congo? ¿Qué posibilidades hay? ¿Cuánto de cerca estamos y por qué no se lleva a cabo? 
Eh, bueno, eso es una pregunta muy difícil porque, a ver, si el mundo fuese perfecto, se podría terminar, o se podrían curar todas estas enfermedades en cinco años. Pero la realidad es que, primero, hay mucha guerra. Segundo, si metes mucho dinero para combatir estas enfermedades, hay mucha corrupción. Entonces, tú puedes mandar eh, dos millones de euros a, al Congo para combatir malaria, pero de esos dos millones igual llegan 100.000 eh, a, a las clínicas por la corrupción. Entonces, es un problema muy grave. On the other hand, um, the, the problem is that, you know, the, the, the locals, they see a lot of money and a lot of resources coming into the Ebola epidemic. Um, that's obviously killing people, but they have not seen nearly as many resources being pulled into other diseases that kill way more people on a daily basis. Um, and so the question is, you know, uh, A, why, if, if, if more people in my community die from malaria every year and more people in my community die from typhoid every year, now that there's this random disease that I've never even heard about, I'm not even sure it exists, and suddenly I'm seeing this giant influx of money and of white people. And so so it's it's complex issue. It's not as easy as just saying we have the resources, let's just do it. Um, you kind of got to get the, 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 the locals on your side. And to this day, that, that's been something that has not been accomplished um, by, by most um, regards. You, you even took a, a photograph or a video and then you posted on Facebook an example of, of someone showing you written on their hand that they hadn't been paid. Talk, what happened there? Mm -hmm. so, so I was walking through um, an Ebola treatment center and I, you know, all these people are in full protective equipment. And I, I look outside of the corner of my eye and there's this man, well, there's two men uh, completely draped in equipment and they're just waving their hand at me. And so, primero, yo creo que son amables y me están diciendo hola, ¿no? Entonces yo también, hola, hola, ¿qué tal? Eh, pero no sé, siguieron, siguieron. Y yo como que, vale, o sea, ¿no os cansáis? ¿Qué está pasando aquí? Y me acerqué un poco, no mucho, pero un poco, y vi, vi que tenían algo escrito en la mano. Entonces me, me señaló con la, con la mano, en plan, mira, vete para allá, vete para allá. Entonces me fui a esa dirección donde había un, un trozo de cristal como una ventana donde nos podíamos ver cerca sin pasarnos el virus, obviamente. Y al poner la mano pude leer lo que, lo que ponía y ponía justo eso, eh, algo, o sea, no me acuerdo perfectamente, pero algo de por favor ayúdanos, no nos han pagado en más de dos meses. So, These are, you know, the frontline workers, the people that National Geographic loves to take pictures of, um, the people that you see on the cover of the New York Times, um, and they're not getting paid. And so I, I kind of, um, at first I, I almost couldn't believe it, so I, so I asked other people around, and they said that, yeah, that they had, they had not been paid um, in about two months. So, so I ended up making a post on, on Facebook just to kind of put the word out there of what was actually going on. And that ended up going viral. Um, I ended up talking to a bunch of different people. Um, I was on the news in Mexico, ended up being the radio in Spain. Um, I was on a, a podcast in the UK, um, now this. So, so you know, things, things came of it, um, at least from a, from a, you know, awareness. Kind of putting, yeah, awareness standpoint, exactly. 
Um, but on the other hand, you know, after I came back to, to the States, I talked to my, my contacts there and they said that they still hadn't been paid and, you know, nothing changed. So, um, so I asked, you know, how, how, how is this, how is this working? Like how, why are you doing this? Um, and they, they, I mean, it's pretty, pretty obvious at the end of the day, this is my town. If I don't do this, everyone's going to die. I don't have a choice. Um, and so I said, you know, how are you feeding yourself and your kids? And he said, it's really hard, but, um, all the, all the workers in the community are, are loaning me food, um, are loaning my kids, um, you know, books and stuff. And whenever I get my paycheck, I'll have to owe it all back to them. Las soluciones eh, a este conflicto, como tú has mencionado anteriormente, no pueden llegar nunca de la caridad, sino que tienen que llegar de la justicia, cambiando la corrupción, cambiando las instituciones, cambiando la atención de los gobiernos a, hacia su gente. Pero mientras esto ocurre, uno no puede evitar el tener eh, emociones y el tener contacto humano con la gente y sé que tú has vuelto de allí especialmente impresionado con las historias de algunos niños que me gustaría que contaras y que me gustaría que nos revelaras también cómo podemos echarte una mano A ver, yo vi muchas cosas en el Congo pero lo que más me, me emocionó fue lo, lo que vi en la ciudad de Beni en la ciudad esa del norte donde, donde había el ébola y donde, donde hay la guerra y lo... Lo muy triste es que se habla mucho del ébola, pero lo que, como ya he dicho varias veces, lo que no se habla es la guerra. Entonces hay muchos huérfanos por la calle eh, que ves en la ciudad que, que no tienen educación, no tienen casa, no tienen padres. Y, y estos justos niños son los que los rebeldes les cogen y les convierten en soldados. So the, the term child soldier is very real um, and it's very real for very obvious reasons because you have this whole generation of, of orphans who um, have, have no support from anywhere, um, you know, externally or internally. And so the only place they can turn to um, are these rebel groups, which will then feed them um, and, you know, house them. Um, and so it becomes this vicious cycle of uh, employing child soldiers um, The, and then committing war crimes down the road. Um, so it's, it's really sad and it's a cycle that needs to be broken and I think that's the best place to start um, in order to at least create some change in the region. Um, and so that, that's kind of what's, what's been motivating me um, going forward here in the States because you know, sometimes it feels like there's not much you can do after you leave a place like that um, when in reality there's almost more you can do. So that's kind of what I've been working on on my side here. That's interesting. That goes to speaks to Nick's question about, you know, what are you doing with that now back in, you know, back in the States? Because mm -hmm. it must it must have been like a like a whiplash in a way for you to go from this intense um, situation and then back to your university campus where you're going to class. Yeah, yeah, and there's actually a, a pretty funny story about my, my return to to the States from the Congo. So I, this was when I was in Beni. Um, I just got done doing a couple of those, uh, you could say, high-risk surgeries um, uh, in, with with people whose status you're, you're unaware of. And I got home, and I looked uh, at my computer and then said that the, all the borders to the Congo had been closed. Um, the WHO had declared it an international emergency, and so all the borders were closed, and I was going to leave the country in, within a few days. 
And so I very frantically, I called my university. I, uh, I, I called my, my dean on the phone, one of, one of the deans, associate deans. Um, and I kind of gave him the whole situation. I was like, listen, um, I know you have no idea what I'm talking about, but I'm in the Congo <laughs> and, uh, working with Ebola and the border's closed and I'm leaving the country soon and school starts in two weeks. So just so you know, I might not be able to make that for the start of school, um, but I'm going to try my best to get to, to get there on time. Um, but just want to fill you in on what's going on with me. And then the most peculiar thing happened. So I called. So this is when I entered panic mode. And so I called the the U.S. embassy in the Congo. Um, and I was like, hey, listen, I am a U.S. citizen um, kind of stranded here in Beni, which is a very dangerous part of the country. And uh, I the borders are closed. I'm supposed to leave. And they kept asking me, what organization are you with? You know, can't they get you out? You know, because everyone goes to Doctors Without Borders, the United Nations, um, that kind of stuff. And so they expected me to uh, to work with them. And then I told them, no, I'm, I'm, I'm by myself. Um, and so so they thought I was crazy. And they're like, OK, well, we'll call you back. Um, they never called me back. Oh. Uh, and so I called them back a couple more times just to get through to them. And every time they just hung up on me. So that's when I was like, well, this is interesting. So I ended up um, kind of kicking into gears and I, I called the United, the citizens in distress around the world hotline. So I, I call, answer the phone and I speak to a Marine um, and he's kind of like, oh, yes, um, I can see see why this is a, an issue. I will talk to my, <laughs> uh, my, my superiors and I'll get back to you. I was like, OK, uh, I'm looking forward to hearing back to you from you. Um, long story short, I heard back from him like four days later. Um, once I was like pretty much crossing the border, uh, they had opened it at that point. Um, but it, it was pretty, pretty crazy. I also, I called the CDC and the Department of State and I told them my situation. They're like, yeah, well, the U.S. doesn't have a protocol, so just do your thing, um, which was interesting. So anyways, from when I'm leaving the Congo, uh, I have to cross the border into Rwanda and cuando, cuando vas a cruzar la frontera a cualquier país del Congo, como hay ébola, te hacen muchas pruebas, te, hace, te preguntan muchas cosas. ¿Dónde has estado? ¿Has, has trabajado con los pacientes? ¿Has estado en contacto con el virus? Ta, 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 te preguntan mil, mil eh, preguntas, pero yo le, o sea, les, di, les dije la verdad, pero también les dije que me voy al aeropuerto y me voy del país inmediatamente. Entonces ellos, vale, vale, pasa, pasa, pasa. Entonces, en el aeropuerto me preguntaron las mismas cosas. Eh, ¿A dónde te vas? ¿De dónde vienes? ¿Vienes de esta ciudad, de esta región? Ta, 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 ta. Y todos, lo, to, to, lo, the, all the red flags that you could flag in the entire world, I just kept checking them off. One, 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 one. Um, but anyways, they didn't mind because I was taking a flight. So my next flight, my, my uh, middle flight was to Nairobi. And Kenya has, has a, a more robust, uh, you know, healthcare infrastructure, um, well, infrastructure in general. And so when I got there, they asked me the same questionnaire uh, with the same secure, like big security system. Um, and once again, all of the red flags. And that's when I was like, well, I think this is when they're going to quarantine me. Um, this, this is I'll be I'll spend the next three weeks in, in Nairobi. But they got the exact same the exact same thing happened. They're like, oh, you're not staying in our country. You have a connecting flight. Bye. So they're like, we don't want to deal with you. Get out of our country. Um, which was nice, uh, but also frightening, but, but nice. 
And so then I, I get to the U.S. Customs uh, at JFK, I believe it was. Um, and here's this is when I was like, OK, you know, like the Department of State knows where I was because I called them and I also put it in the system that I was going to be in this in this part of the world. Um, and so you'd expect, you know, at least like for a red flag to pop through whatever. And so I, I go to, to the ticket booth or the, where you, the passport control and um, the guy's like, where are you coming from? And I told him I'm, I'm coming from the, the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And he just looks at me and says, OK, welcome to the States. And our, our tax dollars hard at work. Yeah. And so the scariest thing is I was still in the incubation period, that 21 day period, because I had been working with patients maybe five, six days prior to this. And so I was like. No, like, there, like I need to be in some sort of isolation. It's like something needs to happen. Like this doesn't make any sense. And uh, no, I kept calling. There's no protocol. So for the first two two weeks in the states after getting back, I would take my temperature every day. Um, I would kind of try to stay away from people. But yeah, it was very odd, very weird um, situation that I was in. So did your mom create like a bubble room for you at home? <laughs> that's where you stayed. That's, that, but that, no, that's the thing is like you need a you need a real bubble room. Um, it's it's you know I, I yeah I was I was quite terrified of being uh, patient zero, spreading it from the Congo to Rwanda to Kenya to JFK International Airport. I did not want to be that guy, but I, I was given no choice. I tried not to be, but the the powers that be seemed to not care. So. Nico Fesser, Nico Fesser eh, tenemos que decir adiós, eh, el podcast se termina con ilusión, pero con rapidez, pero antes me gustaría que recordaras a uh, The Crowdfunding, uh, if anybody wants to help those kids in, uh, in Congo, if anybody wants to help you to build that uh, shelter for the orphans who lost their parents pretty much slaughtered in front of their eyes, uh, which one is the way? Eh, pues sí, si queréis ayudar y os lo suplico, por favor, eh, os voy a pasar el link, no sé si tenéis una página web o algo, eh, o si no lo podéis buscar en, Go, en GoFundMe, se llama eh, Congo War Fund. Eh, lo que estoy intentando hacer es abrir una, un, un centro para los niños. Eh, por ahora ya tenemos el alquiler del centro. Entonces lo, lo siguiente que tiene que pasar es vamos a comprar las camas, después de eso vamos a pagar para la escuela y a través de eso ya, ya podemos ir poco a poco pero por ahora tenemos suficiente dinero para por, por lo menos tener un centro donde pueden dormir van a dormir en el suelo por ahora pero es mejor que la calle entonces con, con los fondos que voy a recaudar eh, vamos a ayudar a estos niños que, que como has dicho son huérfanos o del ébola o de la guerra la mayoría de la guerra y como has dicho es muy brutal como mataron a sus padres y entonces eh, para ayudarles un poco um, so, so what I'm doing is I, I started a GoFundMe which Um, either you can find on, on GoFundMe, it's called Congo War Fund, or you can, um, if you guys have a website or something, I'll, I'll pass you the link and you can you search it on that. Um, but what I'm trying to do is, and we, we've raised $1,500 so far, and that's enough to pretty much open up a shelter for a year for, for some of these, these, um, these kids who have been orphaned, uh, either from Ebola or due to the war. And so right now we have enough money to to give them the shelter that they need so they're not sleeping on the streets. Um, the next idea is to raise more money enough to, to buy them beds um, so that they're not sleeping on the floor of the shelter, um, which still is better than nothing, but you know, 
And then hopefully the more money we get, then we can kind of move on to bigger and better things, such as paying for school fees and, and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, if you'd like to help, please, please chime in. Uh, every dollar goes very far, especially in that region of the country. So um, if you feel so inclined, please, please donate. Adios, nos vamos. Bye, Nick Leiber. Bye, Guillermo Fester. Bye, Bye Lisa. Hasta la próxima. Venga, chao. Adios, muchas chao. gracias. Chao, chao. Dentro de poco volvemos en el podcast bilingüe. Don't interrupt me, por favor. Treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their Golden Glow Body Set includes three clinically proven bestsellers for smooth, glowing skin, while the Glow and Go Facial Set provides spa-level results at home. Both sets come in giftable boxes with savings up to $48 and free shipping for a limited time. For 10% off your first order site-wide, go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM.